Hello and welcome as you join us on Search for Truth. This is your Bible study programme with your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston. I introduce a new series of studies today, which will take up the next 12 weeks, God willing. It's called Sowing in Hard Soil and is aimed to give you a thorough basis for promoting the gospel in situations which might be discouraging, challenging and unfavourable. It should prove to be practically helpful and encouraging to all believers seeking to tell others God's good news message. Today, Brian begins by exploring the context of the gospel in the changing social backgrounds from the first century AD to the present day. The Bible readings are from Paul's New Testament letter to the Romans, if you want to follow later on. Here's Brian. Thanks, John. There's a big difference between the Jewish audiences Paul often addressed in synagogues and the group of Gentile philosophers he encountered at Athens. The Jews already had made their minds up. They thought they knew what the truth was, and they were only listening to see if Paul was teaching something different. While the Gentile audience at Athens was searching for new opinions, it wasn't really interested in arriving at the truth. For them, the search was more enjoyable than embracing truth. Someone has said that the philosophers of Paul's day were to the truth what many cohabiting couples today are to marriage. They want to enjoy its pleasures, but also want to avoid its commitments and obligations. In other words, the Athenians like to window shop in the marketplace of truth, but without buying. Paul begins by telling this group that the God of whom he is speaking is the God who was still unknown to them, but to whose existence an altar of theirs gave testimony, for it was marked as the altar to the unknown God. Today, nature is the unknown God. We hear statements like, it's nature's way of doing things as if that explains why things are the way that they are. And where did nature come from? Ah, don't ask. Nature is the unknown God of the gaps for those who reject the Bible's revelation. It's instructive to compare Acts chapter 2 with Acts chapter 17. In Acts 2, we see Peter speaking at Jerusalem to Jews or wannabe Jews. In that sermon, Peter uses the Old Testament law to bring conviction. Sounds a call to repentance, and the result of this open-air preaching was a massive 3,000 conversions. But now, let's look again at Acts chapter 17. Once again, we have an open-air sermon, this time delivered by Paul. But remember, instead of addressing Jews, he's speaking to a group of Greeks in Athens. Like Peter, Paul also preaches sin and judgment, but with a different outcome. Some mocked, some wanted to hear more, and only a few believed. There's such a marked difference between both the content and the outcome of these two sermons. Peter is speaking to Jews with a biblical foundation. To them, the problem is Christ. But for the Greeks, there's no foundation, no grounding in the Old Testament narrative. And Paul makes brief cultural references instead. For them, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. In the Western world, we're no longer a Christian society, but much more like what Greek society was like back then. When presenting Christianity, we need to be prepared to give an answer to attacks made on the authority of Scripture. And we can't simply preach believe in Jesus to biblically illiterate people who've no real idea of who Jesus is, much less 
any idea why he died on a cross. We live in an Acts chapter 17 type society, and our preaching, to begin with, needs to help society to understand sin and our accountability to the God who made us. The old idea that people already know they're sinners and what sin is, is wrong. We must speak to the conscience of the person. It's worth asking, how did it come to be like this? Well, during the 14th to the 16th centuries in Europe, there was a movement known as the Renaissance or the Renaissance. As the name suggests, it was a revival of interest in literature generally, and this included the study of the Bible in its original languages and as translated into European languages such as German and English. It was a time when all kinds of learning flourished, and the foundations of modern science were laid then too. And there was a definite connection between scientific progress and the renewed interest in the Bible at that time. The return to the literal approach to biblical truth at this time fueled advances in science. God-fearing scientists looked for law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver, he being the Bible's author. When they found that law in nature, modern science was born. But the Renaissance was followed by the so-called Enlightenment of the 17th to 19th centuries. And in 1785, Scottish geologist James Hutton ruled out of court biblical explanations for the history of our planet. He decided as a given that the present must be key to the past. That was how the 18th century ended, and things were to get no better in the 19th. In the first half of the 19th century, an attitude to the Bible known as higher criticism swept through German universities, spreading doubts about the Bible. This was an approach, a way of thinking, that questioned the Bible's authority. It opened the door for what was to follow in the second half of the 19th century. Godless evolutionary speculation built on this scepticism. In 1859, Darwin's Origin of Species rewrote biblical history as not being his story, that's God's story, but simply our own accidental and improbable arrival. In 1900, the German philosopher Nietzsche died, but only after first having declared God to have predeceased him. God was dead, he said, as a philosophical idea. It was no coincidence that the 19th century that followed became the bloodiest in modern times, because accountability to any supernatural authority was set aside, with the framework for morality all but dismantled. This decline of the West parallels the decline of society at the end of the glory days of the Roman Empire. We get a sense of what society was like then from Paul's letter to Rome, reading from chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being perceived through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, 
They did not honour him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonoured among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's quite an indictment of society, isn't it? But these could be today's newspaper headlines. Richard Holloway, Professor of Divinity, wrote an article published in the Scotsman newspaper on Wednesday the 13th of November 2019, in which he presumed to address the author of Genesis and said, You went on to craft a great poem describing how God made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. That's where the trouble started. Some people started to read you not as a glorious fiction that prompted their wonder, but as an accurate news report of a tumultuous week about 6,000 years ago. When religious leaders stopped viewing Genesis as historical, and when the Judeo-Christian foundations of Western society were eroded by anti-biblical thinking, our society, like the society the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, entered into its moral decline because people abandoned the ethical implications of being made in God's image. It's the book of Genesis that defines who we are as human beings, made by God as male and female. This fundamental truth is being reinterpreted today to serve the latest thinking. Marriage is clearly defined in Genesis as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. However, some people take to themselves the liberty to redefine this sacred institution. We need make no mistake, our society is well down the same road as the first century society, which the Apostle Paul wrote about in his Bible letter to Rome. The decline of the West parallels the decline of society during the fading glory of the Roman Empire. This is what inevitably happens when we stop reading Genesis correctly, when we stop reading it according to the rules of literature. When an American evangelist was recently banned from a venue in Glasgow, a Church of Scotland minister said Scottish Christians weren't comfortable 
with the fact that the evangelist in question was opposed to same-sex marriage. The proper place for sexual activity is within a marriage between a man and a woman. To say that is to say what the Bible says. Let's conclude with a little-known positive fact. More than 60% of all Nobel Prize winners between the year 1900 and the year 2000 were those who professed belief in God. One of them put it like this, what science has now discovered is what we might expect based on the book of Genesis. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. As I said earlier, this series of 12 studies is quite detailed and wide-ranging, and if you just listen each week and possibly miss a week or two, it doesn't help you to see the complete picture. It's a bit like having some of the pieces of a jigsaw without the picture on the box. So here's how to get the book. Either you can get it yourself by downloading a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media, or if you're not able to do that and need to request a hard copy book, just write in and ask for Sewing in Hard Soil. You can use email or the post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, before I finish, I just want to say it's been splendid that we could share this time of study together. So thank you for tuning in. And I invite you to join us again next time when Brian will be investigating the essentials for those who set out to transmit the gospel to others. But till then, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers, and me, John. See you again soon, and in the meantime, may God richly bless you. Now.